And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, August 25th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, community days for team bonding all in the office, how that could backfire. Plus, the NIH takes on pregnancy-related health complications. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first... Time is a funny concept when it comes to federal technology initiatives. There's never enough time to do this or fix everything. This initiative will need more time to show results. For that cybersecurity, gambit, time is not on our side. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about two initiatives, the 21st Century IDEA Act and the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Contract, EIS program, where time continues to be fungible and progress is measured in years. Jason joins me now to talk about the tick-tocking clock in federal executives' minds. Jason, let's start with why these particular initiatives underscore this whole time challenge. It's so interesting, Tom, when you think about how much we talk about deadlines and and this executive order and that law, 60 days to do that and 90 days to do this. And then here we are when we looked at these two big initiatives, both now pushing five, six years since they were launched. And we're still talking about them, number one, but two, the time period around them is either growing or shrinking depends on where you sit. For instance, Idea Act, something that President Trump signed in the end of 2018. Uh, it's, it's part of the NDA bill. We've been waiting for guidance for a long time. It's finally coming. EIS, something started in 2017. Agencies were told, you have this deadline, you have that deadline, now you have this deadline. The deadline kept moving, and now eight agencies have even a longer deadline. So this just got me thinking how when we talk about time in the federal technology sector, it's not measured in the same way that maybe you and I measure it in the sense of like, oh, well, I don't have time to write that story or I don't have time to finish that project. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow just seems to keep coming. And, of course, the EIS contract is kind of the front of a wave front that was overlapped by networks, which itself was pushed ahead by FTS 2000, which itself was pushed ahead by FTS and so on, (laughs) by Alexander Graham Bell. So That's the timeline of (laughs) the history of the telecommunications challenges agencies have had. So on the IDEA Act, then, people are just waiting for what they have to do because the rulemaking is taking so long. It's not even rulemaking. It's, it's just guidance. Or policy guidance. Policy guidance, exactly, from the Office of Management and Budget. In, f- in fact, Federal Chief of Information Claire Martirana talked about this earlier this month at the IT Vendor Management Summit, where she said a lot of agencies have moved out on the IDEA Act. And if you remember, Tom, this was the idea of making federal websites better, more secure, but also more usable for citizens, something that a lot of agencies are doing. But she said other agencies are waiting for more deliberate guidance really to start, as she says, the gears of government forward. It basically will be a 10-year roadmap for digital transformation. Much of this is, as I like to say, it's motherhood and apple pie. It's all those good things that we all know have to happen, but it's really deliberate 
thoughtful and achievable for our government to execute on the 21st century idea. Federal CIO Claire Monterana speaking at the recent ITVMO conference. And, and really what she's saying there, Tom, is we know we have to get it out. We know it's coming. It's taken a long time, but we're not just sitting still. And it, you know, when I went back to look at it, there's two reasons why it's taken so long. Again, why the timeline has been so long. Part of it is OMB's fault. They just haven't done it. Part of it, you can say it's the pandemic. Other priorities got higher. Cybersecurity was was a much higher priority than the IDEA Act. And then some of this goes back to Congress. Yeah, they passed the law, but they haven't really done much since then. There's been no hearings. There's been one letter that I could find. Uh, Jerry Connolly, the congressman from Virginia, threatened to add the IDEA Act to the FITAR, the Federal IT Act sure, yeah. Reform Act scorecard. That's a potent threat. <laughs> he never did. Uh, and here we are in 2023, haven't even had a FITAR scorecard yet because the sure. chairwoman of the committee, Nancy Mace, is not a, necessarily a big fan of it. So, again, there's a lot of reasons why there's been a delay, but now it's time and makes you rethink about why things take so long in government. And let's talk about the EIS telecommunications contract. Interestingly, do you know how many federal agencies have disabled and tossed out their desk phones in the meantime? But nevertheless, you got to talk some way. Why has EIS just not taken on the momentum everyone hoped for it? I think there's several reasons why. I think, you know, there's about 122 of 222 agencies, tribal organizations, and others who actually have made the full transition. But a lot of the big agencies, the CFO Act agencies, have not. And what GSA basically said is, listen, we understand why this takes a long time. We understand there's a cost involved here. We understand the challenges. We are doing everything we can to make this go faster. But GSA has never had the hammer to say, do it or else. And and they can threaten them that we're going to turn you off. But let's be in reality, you really just can't turn off the Commerce Department or the Justice Department. So GSA approved two extra years instead of deadline of May 2024. Now the eight agencies have May 2026 as their deadline. We reported on two agencies back in December, Justice and Homeland Security Departments, as receiving that extra time. Now we've learned that there are six other agencies, Transportation, Commerce, and Agriculture, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Government Accountability Office... You can insert your irony there, Tom. Yes. And the U.S. courts all need those extra two years. And there's no one reason why they need more time to get off of it. And GSA you know, said we've already proven an extension for, for 82 other agencies. So there's a lot of effort, a lot of time that's needed. Laura Stanton, the GSA's assistant commissioner for the IT category in the Federal Acquisition Service, wrote in August 10th blog post about this extension. But she also said, listen, we're working with agencies to do everything we can to get them on the right path. Again, we went from these tight deadlines, assumingly tight deadlines, to now a little more time. And now we're going to give you even more time for a specific set of agencies. And I think part of the problem for EIS is that the agencies keep getting urged, don't just buy the same old service you've been using, whatever it might be, wave division multiplexing or whatever, get with some new protocol. But that's that's a heavy lift for agencies. And if things are working and the bits are getting across from one point to the other, you know, they've got other priorities like cyber and user experience. I think you're absolutely right that there's a big push to use EIS to modernize the infrastructure, to take advantage of software-defined networking and voice over IP and other current and emerging technologies. I think where the challenge is, is a lot of agencies said, you know what, we're just going to get off networks, get on EIS with like for like, and then we'll start to modernize. Remember, Tom, this is a 10-year contract. There's plenty of time for agencies, and I think GSA has been talking about this for a while, talking about 
them to you have time to continue to evolve your use of EIS. But the issue is getting them even just onto EIS, and that is what's why several agencies need two extra years. Yeah, and also you know agencies have lots of components, and especially in a place like agriculture or transportation, treasury. The big components have their own rhythms and their own concerns and their own CIOs. So it's very hard to get a whole department to switch in some manner. And I think that's the exact issue with the IDEA Act as well, just to tag back to that. What OMB is trying to do is say, we realize this will take you some time to get done. We realize there's complications. So there have actually are encouraging agencies to apply for the Technology Modernization Fund to get some of that extra funding, money that maybe was not available for EIS, to say, hey, for these two areas, website accessibility and digital forms, here's a pilot we're going to test out with some templates that you can kind of pre-populate and then in- improve upon to submit your proposal. They've actually set a deadline of September 22nd for those initial round of proposals. And as OMB said and TMF board said, we will continue to accept proposals, but the funding is limited. One thing they didn't say is how much funding they're setting aside. If you remember from last uh, June 2022, they said we're going to have $100 million for customer experience, CX proposals. They didn't quite go as far for Idea Act proposals. It would have been nice if they said we're going to put out there, you pick the dollar amount, Tom, 50 million, 75 million, whatever it is. Looking at GSA's budget request for 2024, they expected to have about $400 million left in the TMF for 2024. So there's definitely funding there. If there's funding, there's always time to get it. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com online now. Still to come, The NIH takes on pregnancy-related health complications. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Tens of thousands of American women suffer dangerous complications during pregnancy each year. Some die. Now the National Institutes of Health has awarded $24 million in grant money to form a new center of excellence devoted to maternal health research and improvement. Joining me with the details, the chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, Dr. Nahida Chaktura. Dr. Chaktura, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. And your branch lives in one of the institutes, correct? Correct. My branch, the Pregnancy and Perinatology branch, is in the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Okay. Well, a lot of words to describe something very important. And there's a parent program here that these grants come under called the IMPROVE program. So NIH and the Shriver Center were already on the beat, if you will, for pregnancy issues. Tell us about the IMPROVE program, first of all. Sure. So in response to the maternal health crisis that we had, the NIH launched the IMPROVE initiative, which is a multi-pronged initiative implementing a maternal health and pregnancy outcomes vision for everyone in 2019. This is an NIH-wide effort coordinated by a couple of institutes, including NICHD, the National Office of Research on Women's Health, and the National Institute of Nursing Research, but with many participating institutes at NIH. And the initiative focus is to reduce preventable causes of maternal morbidity and mortality, 
addressing disparities in maternal health outcomes, expanding implementation of evidence-based maternal health care practices before, during, and after pregnancy, building research capacity in community-based organizations, promoting access to maternal health care with innovative point-of-care technology, among other activities. And you mentioned the crisis in the country. What makes it a crisis? I mean, it would be a percentage of population that is having this problem or the percentage of pregnancies that have this issue. And what makes it a crisis in the United States? And where do we kind of rank worldwide on these types of problems? Compared to other high-income countries, the United States has a high rate of maternal death, with more than 1,200 such deaths occurring in 2021, the most in recent years where data is available. But in addition to that, each year, tens of thousands of Americans experience severe pregnancy-related complications, which can raise the risk of future health concerns, including high blood pressure, diabetes, and mental health conditions. And there are stark disparities in these maternal health outcomes by racial and ethnic groups, age, education, socioeconomic status, as well as geographic regions. Okay, so now that uh, you are establishing a center of excellence, and it's really through a grant program, uh, tell us what the center of excellence will specifically do under the IMPROVE project. So the Maternal Health Research Centers of Excellence is a new nationwide initiative to develop and evaluate innovative approaches to reducing pregnancy-related complications and deaths and to promote maternal health equity. As mentioned earlier, we need to address the growing maternal health crisis in the United States by identifying evidence-based solutions to promote health equity and improve outcomes. And this initiative works collaboratively that includes community involvement in research so that the populations affected are part of the solution. And another component of the centers is that training the next generation of investigators to conduct maternal health research, addressing the needs of communities nationwide. It sounds like the crisis that you described in pregnancy and and illness and dangers associated with pregnancy are not equally distributed across the population? Correct. There are stark inequities in maternal health outcomes. For example, for black women, they are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. There are also disparities, as mentioned earlier, by age, education, socioeconomic status, and geographic regions. There are no single causes, and so we need multifaceted approaches to reduce these maternal health disparities and adverse outcomes. And what works for one community may not work for the other. For example, one of the main drivers of the health crisis is lack of access to maternity care. More than 2.2 million women in the U.S. live in maternity care deserts with no access to obstetric care, and even more live in areas with low or moderate access to maternity care. So one of the strengths of these research centers is that they are geographically spread across the U.S., and will include the populations at risk for adverse outcomes as community members of the research teams come up with solutions. We're speaking with Dr. Nahida Choktura. She is the chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, part of the NICHD, and $24 million has gone out to grantees. Where did it go and what will they do first? So the research focus for these centers is broad, and so there are several programs listed that will be 
utilizing the funds for studies related to hypertension, postpartum care, diabetes, and other initiatives. So the proposed projects, again, for each of the centers will be the focus of research of each individual center. So these centers are teaching hospitals or academic hospitals or places like that? Mostly academic hospitals in partnership, again, with the communities that they serve. And so these hospitals then, if they're in those communities where they serve, they could be near the so-called deserts that you say of healthcare access. Absolutely. They would be involving populations that are in rural communities and or even urban communities with obstetrical deserts. Interesting. I guess maybe the cause of the obstetrical deserts is probably something that you'll be researching. Why there are so few obstetricians and so forth in those areas in the first place. The centers will be researching alternatives. Some centers may be researching alternatives to care. Each research center is partnering with community collaborators, such as state, local policies, community health centers, and faith-based organizations so that they can work within their communities to address the needs of those communities. And a lot of other NIH institutes are involved in this whole project too, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. The IMPROVE initiative includes multiple centers and institutes within NIH. So this is an NIH-wide activity that is being supported. Now, you are an obstetrician yourself, correct? Yes, I am. What is your hunch as to some of the possible causes of these disparate realities during pregnancy and unfortunate outcomes that are not equally distributed but localized with certain types and population characteristics. What do you think is going on here? As mentioned, we think that there are multiple factors that contribute to the disparities, including access to care, quality of care, underlying chronic conditions, and structural factors such as implicit bias and others that could be contributing to the maternal health adverse outcomes as well as disparities. But you're going to find out one way or another through these centers of excellence. So these centers are to work on solutions as well to understand what works for communities and how we can address some of the barriers that some communities are facing. And there's follow-on money if it becomes available through appropriations to keep building on these centers and the outcomes and the research, correct? Yes, we funded the first year at $24 million as part of the IMPROVE initiative, and these awards are for seven years, and so the grants are expected to last seven years. And in total, if we, pending availability of funds, we could have these centers for seven years. All right. Dr. Nahida Choktura is chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, part of the NICHD. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Defense Department's big cloud contract seems to be taking hold. But first, community days for team bonding all in the office. How that could backfire. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. With everyone seeming to come to the office on random days, some federal managers have instituted what they call community days. 
designated days when everyone is required to come in. My next guest says that could do more harm than good. Longtime federal labor relations guru Bob Tobias joins me now. And I think it's well-intentioned, Bob, to get everyone in so that the bonding and purported team-building dynamics can happen when everyone's in person. But you're not so sure. I'm not, Tom. I'm really not. You know, the theory for community days, as you suggest, seems to be that employees in a hybrid workplace who come to the office many different times, many different days, really doesn't provide managers with an opportunity to create the interpersonal relationships and connections that are necessary to create a workplace community, and more importantly, a workplace community that will do creative problem solving. And so the solution seems to be, for some, community days, but I I just don't think it'll work. Why not? I don't think it's going to work first because a workplace relationship starts first with a leader with one person, one person at a time and build out to a group. Calling a group together can build on individual trust, but rarely can it be the sole basis for community creation. And if I don't believe, if as an employee, I don't believe that coming to work is going to really create relationships, I'm going to be angry. And I'm going to think I've lost a full day of doing real work just to appease some person who thinks coming to work is going to create what I need. But finally, and most importantly, even if employees were not angry, a community day mandate assumes that agency leaders and managers have the skills they need to create workplace community and an environment for creative problem solving. And we know from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that most leaders and managers don't have those skills. Yet there seems to be a fundamental perception on some people's parts, managers, and and frankly, a lot of long-time employees. I mean, the ones I've heard that would like to return to the office tend to be the senior executives, and they're not running agencies or maybe they're running small bureaus, but they just have that culture. But the fundamental thinking is something is different with everyone being hybrid or remote versus the old way. And, you know, we sometimes forget teleworking existed before the pandemic. It's got a you know good 20-year history of real activity in the federal government. But there's something fundamentally different. And how do you address that? Well, you know, I think the solution for creating workplace communities is the same now as it was pre-COVID. And that is developing leaders who are skilled at creating relationships. And I had this experience when I was teaching a group of deputy chief information officers during the COVID shutdown via Zoom. So I convened a panel of CIOs and I asked them, so what's been the most important change in your leadership style that has occurred as the result of COVID? And one CIO said, you know, I am an introvert. I am such a shy introvert. And I got to be a CIO because I was a great technician. So people came to me and ask me technical questions, and I was able to create a relationship. But when COVID occurred, it all stopped. And so I had to decide to call people individually, set up an appointment, do a Zoom call, and talk about non-business matters. He said it was so hard to press the Zoom call and actually meet someone one-on-one 
and say, I'd like to talk about something other than business necessary to create those relationships. So I think the lesson for agency leaders means taking the time as it has always been to create meaningful personal relationships with each directory and ensuring on down the line that people have the skills they need to press the button and actually create relationships. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a retired professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University and former federal union president. But that is, you know, leader to employee or manager to employee, the hub and spoke. What about the peer-to-peer relationships that are so crucial in a workplace? I think that's also critical, Tom. But if I'm the manager who's calling those peer-to-peer relationships together in a workplace where I don't trust you as my manager, peer-to-peer relationships are not going to be created And getting back to the question then of community days, could there be a way it could work if there was a specific purpose to the day? Say we're going to help build out the strategic plan for the next six months, or we have these three problems the organization is facing. We want everybody's brain in a room together to put up ideas, and you can sort of smell the post-it notes coming. But (laughs) nevertheless, uh, I mean, could that be a, a cogent way to have these happen? Clearly, Tom, if there is a purpose for a meeting and everybody recognizes the purpose for a meeting, that will be important and people will come to the meeting. Great, but are they going to accomplish anything? Are they going to really achieve what it is they want to achieve? So it is great to come together, but are they going to achieve what they want to achieve? And without building the trust, creating the relationships, they're going to get a less valuable product they would otherwise obtain. So I think, Tom, that I'm a leader and I can mandate a community day. So I have the coercive power to require employees to come to work, but coercive power is antithetical to creating an environment where employees choose to create meaningful relationships with their manager and with each other. I wonder if a community day somewhere other than the office would work. And this takes me back to childhood days when my father was a scientist for a large corporation that had a lab. And every year that unit, and it was a couple of hundred people, I think, would have a community day at a local amusement park in this case, Kennywood, outside of Pittsburgh. And all the families would come, and all the employees, it was mostly men uh, in those days, and we'd all go to Kennywood and have a picnic. And somehow the employees, I guess themselves, the dads in those days, would maybe bond in that manner or get to know each other manner, and the families were present. What if that type of model, could that work? Well, I think that kind of a model is an important supplement to creating a relationship. It further enhances what I've already started with you as a person I'm leading. And I think it's important. But if that's all there is, it doesn't work. People go and they have fun and they stay with their family. They don't talk to other families and everybody has fun, but the fun is not directed in a way that's going to create great workplace relationships. So getting back to the deputy CIO you mentioned, and there must be a more thankless job than deputy CIO in the federal government. (laughs) It would be hard to think of what it might be, maybe deputy HR manager or something. But that person was an introvert. So it's the introvert quality that is far more operative here than the presence or telepresence of the people. 
Yeah, I think it is. But it doesn't just mean because I'm an introvert, it's difficult. I think it is a real skill that has to be honed and developed to really create a trusting workplace environment. And that's what's missing. A focus on the fundamental issue. How do I do it? How do I really start creating those relationships? Now, some people have a natural talent and a natural ability, but many do not. Bob Tobias is a retired professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program who's got lots of longtime friends. <laughs> He's also a former federal union president. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Defense Department's big cloud contract seems to be taking hold. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Justin Doubleday, host of Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. My show features interviews with leaders and top thinkers in the intelligence community. We'll break down how agencies are adapting to new technologies and confronting 21st century challenges. Listen live on 1500 AM in the Washington, D.C. area and everywhere at federalnewsnetwork.com. You can also subscribe to Inside the IC on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In the short nine months since the Defense Department awarded the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, JWCC, the military services and agencies have made 13 task award orders worth more than $200 million. JWCC officials say they're pretty sure that's just the beginning. For more of what's in the cloud pipeline, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the DOD's Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Information Enterprise, Lily Zalecki. There's anywhere from 30 to 40 in process at different levels, the, the task order process. So really, at this stage, the, the fact that the demand and really the process has already shown us that it's, it's gone beyond our expectations as we implement this. So we just kicked this off not many months ago, and we're already really charging forward. I cannot tell you, you know, exactly how many percent. Again, that really depends on when their contracts, the components contracts expire, and then, you know, what will be able to move immediately, et cetera. But again, we really believe we're off to a great running start with implementation. I appreciate that the data you've been able to provide. And then has the task order process also evolved a little bit? I know there's some early discussions about how it would work. Maybe it'd be uh, maybe assigned, if you will, maybe that's not the best word, but there's this idea that, well, this will go to AWS and this will go to Microsoft or Oracle or whomever or Google, or how has that task order process evolved? Is it more traditional now, but maybe more happens more quickly? That's really the whole point is to speed up the process, uh, the acquisition process or the task order process. So that's really, as the hack puts it, sort of a turbo tax kind of uh, you know, you put your process in and, and then, of course, it also depends on the receiving components to ultimately make some decisions as far as how they go about uh, in their co contracting options. So there are optionalities. That's the other thing this contract buys us, the way we do it. Uh, but ultimately, um, again, this is the whole point of having a multi-cloud is to have the optionality and the diversity that the various CSP springs. So we are not going to assign this goes to this one, this goes to this one. 
that's the whole uh, task order competing process is about. Lily, let me go to the other part of the memo that I thought was really interesting, which is this idea of the military departments and defense agencies. I think the word shall or strongly encouraged to use JWCC for secret and top secret cloud services. Walk me through that decision a little bit. I think the way we step through the initial conditions and requirements is, like I said, the fourth estate and OSD components really, as their contracts expire, should really be hopping on JWCC to the maximum extent possible for unclassified, secret, top secret across the board. For the military departments, to the point I made earlier, they've made a lot of investments in uh, establishing, especially on the unclassified side, quite a bit of their cloud activities. And really, they drive a lot of the warfighting missions, and we really don't want to break missions. So we are lenient on the unclassified piece, but we strongly encourage, again, we're not really mandating it, but we're strongly encourage the secret and top secret piece, especially the top secret piece, was an incredible gap that we had in DOD that we've brought to the table. And we really want that to be used to the maximum extent possible. And really, that's where also it makes sense from just overall our mission perspective that we really need to be in a joint manner and that we need to be interoperable and consistent across the board. I want to jump over to the governance piece. You mentioned that earlier, that that's the other really key part of the memo. And I love that you came up with a new acronym, the DOD IEPM2C. Try saying that with one with one mouthful. <laughs> exactly. So maybe let's talk about how this governance was is being set up, and really, what's this really mean for JWCC? Because, as you said, folks moving to the cloud is not new. The, the military departments, the defense services, and agencies have been doing it for quite a while. So, how's this governance process going to work? And, and and talk a little bit about how it's set up. First of all, we're looking at all of our capabilities are, as portfolios. And, you know, the management of that. In addition, modernization is included in there. And then, like, our capabilities are evolving. So we really needed to make sure that our governance evolves with our uh, requirements. And, you know, JWCC is one aspect, but in general, cloud, software, we have defense business systems, but you know, from a rationalization standpoint, we're looking at our entire IT portfolio, et cetera. So we really needed to um, move away from, uh, you know, our previous governance was focused on more net-centric look. Now we're really looking at evolving our focus to a data-centric uh, focus. And that's really how the governance is evolving. So a lot of our cloud initiatives and activities are now going to be going through this process. But also, you know, if you look at software category management, which is really ultimately in a back end sort of way is directly tied to why do we move to the cloud? You know, it is really about uh, evolving our software portfolio. So we're going to do all of these things in a more current and streamlined and collaborative way. That's the other piece is we really, this is not a DOD CIO only walk or a DISA only walk. This requires incredible collaboration across the department. And we're taking all of that into account and we just needed to evolve our governance and really say that we are going to take this cloud piece as well as the guidance that we put out 
we're going to implement in a real way uh, and and really remove barriers and ceremonial things and really do some serious uh, work in this governance. When you talk about remove barriers and more collaboration, what's the first thing this kind of governance body is going to take on beyond what do we move to GWCC or whatnot? Or what are some of those kind of initial things that are going to be most important to, to try to tackle? We will immediately begin the data call we promised and the rationalization effort for cloud. We're also going to take up, you know, indirectly, this is related to, again, software um, is going to be a part of category management, which is really, again, the buying power uh, of the department for software and software services. We're going to take that up. User experience. Ultimately, how do we use and how does that translate to the user and to, you know, how do how does this help us get out of technical debt? So all of these things are what we're going to take up through this governance process. Uh, but I wouldn't be so focused on the governance as much as really accountability. And ultimately, when we think governance, oh, we're going to put the hammer down, we're going to get after the... No, it's also keeps us accountable. DOD, CIO, DISA, all of us, you know, around the table. So really that's the shift we're, we're making with this governance is that this is, you know, a whole of DOD governance that we're going to try to make sure that it, it remains accountable. We track what we need to do and say, uh, do what we say and, um, so I, I think it, it was an imperative that we evolved the governance process. A lot of times DOD or really any agency puts out these great contracts. They, they talk about it, they celebrate it. And then, you know, you look down the road three, five, seven years, and it hasn't quite lived up to what it wants. Uh, we won't go through the litany of contracts that we could talk about. What metrics are you using and that you obviously hopefully maybe publicly or maybe not publicly share that says, okay, this is how we're going to see if JWCC is really doing what we hoped it would do. Well, I think what you're going to start seeing is the results are going to show in our mission accomplishments. For example, we've really, one of the things that we're driving as a priority is enabling tactical edge, global compute fabric, that doesn't happen, uh, you know, just uh, on its own. It's going to require us to have that connectivity, interoperability, the ability to work together as as an entire department and really across our our um, the federal entities as well as uh, our coalition partners. So as you see all those things materialize, really, that's the kind of thing that we're in you know, beginning to enable, and you know, that is laid out in our software modernization implementation plan. Really, we're not moving to cloud just to move to cloud. We're really enabling some serious critical capabilities that we've laid out. The software factories, when when you start seeing what they are delivering, how they're, we're streamlining and being able to do DevSecOps and, you know, modern software practices, then you'll start seeing, seeing those are the measures of a good contract, to be honest with you. Lily Zalecki is the Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Information Enterprise at the Defense Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. In the Pentagon, it's not all that uncommon for computers to take so long to boot you can plan your coffee breaks around them. 
But the Navy thinks it's found some ways to fix that, taking that average wait time from around 10 minutes to just 30 seconds. It's part of a broader push to improve IT user experience across the Defense Department. Justin Finelli is the Department of the Navy's Acting Chief Information Officer. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what the Navy's learned through its UX pilot projects. For those of us in uh, uniform and, uh, and civilians who have been working in and around uh, the DOD, uh, we know that our IT uh, user performance hasn't always been what our, uh, our war fighters need and deserve. Um, and so that's been something that we've been aggressively uh, working on just making better and better and better. So in, in terms of the specific problem, uh, the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, said, hey, user experience is extremely important to us. And uh, and uh, there were some folks who had been uh, working on that for some time to come, but that was uh, really a call to arms to uh, get after that and to bring some of our best solutions that were uh, bubbling up to the surface, really pulling them up uh, in accelerated fashion there. And uh, and the secretary and the team there have been extremely supportive since then. And so what we've done is surveyed the land to say, hey, what are the toughest components as we've dug in and deconstructed this problem? And uh, what are the most mature solutions or options for how we can get these to our sailors make the biggest impact? Um, it's, it's really uh, a, a matter of highest impact issues associated with, from a power laws perspective, highest impact uh, solutions and how we get those fixed, uh, killed dead and scaled to our users. And you guys have been pretty upfront about the fact that there was really no one immune to this subpar user experience because of their rank. You know, people up to and including the chief of naval operations were having a bad time with, with their computers. So let's talk about some of the work that you did in the Pentagon, which I think was one of your test sites for, for one of your first test sites for for some of these improvements. Talk about what you learned there in these pilots that I think you've been doing over the summer, why you selected the Pentagon in the first place, and 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 what you've learned and what you've improved. Absolutely. So as, as we've learned uh, from uh, many experts over time, we want to start with the problem, not with the solution. Uh, it's faster, uh, it's more cost-effective, and it's more to the point. So First and foremost, we dug in on the actual measures from a bottleneck perspective. We didn't want to guess at that. We didn't want to throw solutions at a problem we didn't fully understand. So we've gone from the network out and the end user device back in to really identify where are the uh, most dastardly and, and most difficult and, uh, and most impactful problems. And based on that, we've broken this into uh, a, a deconstructed set of problems to include uh, the uh, bases and the performance at individual sites, as well as the endpoints. And so by breaking this into pilots, and uh, in some cases, even sub-pilots, we've attacked the highest return on investment problems, and we've seen some uh, really surprising successes. Some of that is because we had been working on a, a problem for a while had a good solution and we think it's mature enough to scale that and learn while we're doing that scaling and in some cases we discovered some new problems and uh, and found that there were a few different groups working on the same problem we took the best of breed and started scaling that so specifically at the pentagon one of the reasons that we chose there was uh, the pentagon is a uh, is a little bit like uh, manhattan uh, new york if you can do it there you can do it anywhere and uh, and 
we thought this would be a, a hard and a good place to get a performance way up on some of these computers. Um, certainly there were um, performance areas for improvement like everywhere, but uh, this is one where it's one of the densest uh, workspaces in the world. And uh, as a result of that, um, it was extremely important, uh, just like some of the frontline um, uh, components, uh, extremely important to improve performance. But uh, again, we thought that was a good place to prove out the scaling. And so uh, the AVD, the uh, Azure Virtual Desktop or uh, Nautilus Virtual Desktop, NVD, uh, component uh, scaling is something that we have piloted, and uh, Captain Olone uh, is is one of the leads there, as well as Damon Regan in really making that happen. That's one that um, since Don IT East, we've scaled from about twenty five thousand to forty thousand users. This is one that the reserves, as well as a number of different key user groups, uh, have been outstanding in providing feedback, and uh, and the feedback is positive, and it continues to get more positive. Um, in terms of other aspects of the Pentagon, um, the base area network, local area network, so ban LAN uh, remediation is something that we've dug into. Again, we've dug from the top down and from the bottom up to figure out how we can improve that performance and based on tuning configuration, partnerships, uh, really grinding with, uh, with small groups of people from both our organization and others, really some Margaret Mead type stuff. Uh, we've seen uh, improvements uh, to, the, to the point of, um, a, uh, in some cases, five times uh, faster uh, uh, back and forth. Uh, so latency drops that are significant. Uh, in some cases, uh, all the way up to the end point, uh, including the network performance where uh, client app performance and boot time have resulted in between five and 10 times improved performance. I, I want to go back to your problem identification stage here. As, as you looked at all this, what did it turn out was causing those, for example, extremely long boot times? I think it was no kidding, 10 minutes to boot a computer in the Pentagon when you, when you started all this. How did things get to that point, and what did you learn about what the root causes of that were? Sure. Uh, in some cases, um, it's the hardware itself, and so uh, refreshes have helped, but uh, in more cases, that's the software and, uh, and kind of the sprawl of software and, and not necessarily one owner on top of there. And so uh, we've worked on this new operating system baseline, and in fact, this is one case where um, there may be more art than science there. And so we had three different groups. They um, two outside of the Navy, Department of Navy, uh, and one inside of the Navy. And we shark tanked uh, whose image of the operating system was highest performance. And so uh, we merged that. We uh, took that into flank speed, uh, put those on flank speed managed devices, and, uh, and that was the winner. And that was one where um, we're regularly seeing over 18x improvement on boot times. So we've had E3s and admirals alike say, wow, we'll just get very short emails with this is much, much better. Um, and, uh, and that's something that we want to scale to everyone as soon as possible. Uh, so that's the software, the hardware side. And then at times there's the network dependency, which comes back to the ban LAN remediation and then some of the rewiring efforts that we're doing at other bases. The accretion of all that software that had been slowing things down, I, I mean, presumably there were reasons for all of these things to be added to images 
over time. I assume a lot of it was security related. Talk a bit about what you're doing to make sure that as you streamline these images, you're not taking away some of that critical security protection. Absolutely. In general, the uh, the piling on of, uh, of different solutions um, in a hurry have oftentimes led to overlap. And we've seen that both in the uh, security performance as well as the, um, the overall performance of the computer. Uh, one of the things that has been a guiding light there and very helpful is the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office came out with uh, these Zero Trust activities. And so there are 91 threshold activities, and that's a baseline uh, and an organizing construct, a framework really, um, to say uh, here are places that we might be covered. Uh, here are places that we aren't. And that was a basis for some of the NSA red teams and for the department, the uh, DOT&E, uh, to come in and do these evaluations where um, we are improving through subtraction. So uh, this is what we're seeing in a lot of cases is, hey, this is provably more secure without as many duplicative applications on top. Justin Finelli, the Department of the Navy's Acting Chief Technology Officer. To hear this interview with Jared Serbu in its entirety, check out the latest edition of On DoD at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DoD. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 